All right. We continue our series entitled Doctrine for Dummies. Uh, no offense, but that's directed at you and I, you know. And the point of Doctrine for Dummies, it's the basics. It's what you need to know. It's just like that series you see in the bookstores. If you want to find out the basics of just about any subject, you can use that series that you find in the bookstores and and they'll give you the basics. And that's what we're here to study is the basics of the Bible. We're going through each one. And the last, uh, including t- uh, today, three weeks in a row on the Trinity, the doctrine of the, tw- the Trinity. And the way I explain the Trinity is according to function. And if you remember, you have God the Father has the plan, the will, and the decree. And then God the Son carries it out. And then God the Spirit, which is what we're studying today, the Holy Spirit has that subjective influence within the believer, uh, teaching and leading and guiding and uh, and even convicting us, uh, giving us a heightened conscience. So it's that part of God, the person of God, who works within us to confirm the truth about God. And so somebody told me this one time, and there's a lot of real estate people here, so you'll relate to this. When you're trying to figure out a, uh, a metaphor for the Trinity, you can figure that the Father is the architect. You know, the architect has the plan. The Son is the builder. He gets it built. And the Spirit is the real estate salesman. Wait a minute. That third one doesn't work too good, but... But you get the point. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, Paul talks about the suffering in the world, and he talks about the battle that goes on within us that we have, between Christians, that is, between the selfish, worldly desires that are just naturally ours in the flesh. You know, like greed, we're all, you know, struggle with greed, jealousy, Uh, lustful desires, anger, all these things that are common to man. There's a struggle within us between those desires and the Holy Spirit who indwells us. The Holy Spirit that we is trying to give us that that leadership, that spiritual mindset that we uh, value so highly. And then in verse 9 in Romans 8, Paul says that if Jesus Christ is your Savior, the Spirit of God dwells in you. There's no question about it. It is the case. He says, in fact, he gives the negative of it. He says, you are not in the flesh now, but in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So if you belong to Christ, of course, on the other, the flip side, the Spirit of God is in you. It's, it's, it's an absolute. Know that it's true. You may not feel it, you may have not experienced it as much as you would like to, but it is no doubt still true. So the first principle is, all believers are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, whether you know it or not. And then Paul goes on in Romans 8 to tell us that, therefore, in spite of any circumstances in your life that are going on, suffering, adverse circumstances, trouble, whatever it is, in spite of that, you can still have joy in the Spirit. You can still have happiness, security, and hope because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit 
in our lives. So principle number two, the Holy Spirit has been given to make an impact, to make a difference in your life now. So we should have that joy all the time, no matter what is going in our life. We should have that joy, just like Tom Hanks in Big. What do you think of that? The championship hockey? Yeah. Oh, I love it. Only the... Only what? Well, the pieces don't move. What do you mean? Well, on the old set, you could slide the men up and down the ice. And now all they do is spin around. It's more like real hockey the old way. Why'd they change it? I don't know. See, the Starfighters are good because you can change all the pieces. But I never liked the Galacticons. You only get one robot, and they don't come with a vehicle. Plus, you can't take them underwater. And if you do, they... Nice. Don't you wish you could be happy like that all the time? <laughs> that would be the life. Well, it's one thing, uh, you know, to, to look forward to joy and happiness in heaven. I mean, we all kind of think that way, that that's, that's really where we're going to find real joy and happiness. But it's quite another to experience it here and now. I found a poem that you can probably relate to. To live above with saints we love. Ah, that would be glory. But to live below with saints we know, now that's a different story. <laughs> and that, that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? I mean, life is, is just not that easy and that, all that happy all the time. And when you study the Trinity, 
That's what the Holy Spirit is about. God the Father seems far away. He's transcendent. You know, it's hard to get a handle on Him. And Jesus seems far removed in history. We study Him and what He did, you know, 2,000 years ago. But the Holy Spirit is active within our lives and believers' lives right now. That's what the Bible's telling us. God is working in us right now. It is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we experience God. We're not just positionally saved, but God also wants us to experience the spiritual life right now here on earth. The Holy Spirit was the active person of the Trinity that called you initially to Christ. You know, people struggle, and of course theologians have been writing about this for centuries, about how exactly are you converted. You know, what is the process? And the Bible talks about it. There's, there's a balance there between the work of the Holy Spirit and, of course, the volition that we have in believing. But in some sense, it's clear that the Holy Spirit definitely prepares our hearts to believe. And so you can say the Holy Spirit called you to Christ. Initially, the Holy Spirit impressed on your heart that the gospel was true. But the Holy Spirit definitely played a part in our conversion to Christ. At the same moment of salvation, whether it was when you were five years old or as an adult, the Holy Spirit was responsible for your regeneration. Uh, that's a word theologians mean. To, you became a new person, a spiritual person at that point in time. And passages like 1 Corinthians 12, 13, uh, this is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Sounds like a real mystical term, but it's basically that point where the Holy Spirit identified you. If you think, every time you think of, a, of baptism in the New Testament, you can substitute the word. Uh, the Holy Spirit has related you to something through His work uh, in you, within you. You were born spiritually. It is at that point in time in which you were saved and the Holy Spirit indwelled you. And so now as we live the Christian life, the Holy Spirit is active in our spiritual growth. It is going on progressively as long as we live. And again, theologians call that sanctification. That's just that fancy word saying that God is at work in you, setting you apart is what it literally means. And it's a progressive thing. Uh, you can call it spiritual growth, all the same thing. Progressively changing you from the inside out. As the Holy Spirit is illuminating God's Word for you, is revealing it to you. you know, have you ever had that light bulb go on when you were studying the Word and you go, now? You know, that's the Holy Spirit working in you. He's guiding you. He's teaching you. He's gifting you. He's convicting you of, of sin. Uh, you have a heightened conscience, a, a, a sensitivity to sin that you didn't quite have before. Uh, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, uh, to the believers there, who were not experiencing the kind of joy that we're talking about that the Holy Spirit wants you to have. And Paul said to them, 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you are a temple of God? He's likening their body to a temple. A temple of God and the Holy Spirit dwells in you. So that's the image. Your, your body is this structure and the Holy Spirit has taken up residence 
within you. Then again in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he says, Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, and you are not your own. Now, you got to admit, that should put a damper on some of those temptations you have, right? Because you know that the Spirit of God is right there with you while you're doing whatever it is you're tempted to do. And that's what he's trying to tell them. God is in you, working, leading you, and guiding you. So uh, let's trace the development of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible. It begins in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1. The Holy Spirit is mentioned in the creation in the Old Testament. And then throughout the whole, the, the whole Old Testament, is mentioned, the, whole, the uh, Holy Spirit's mentioned at least a hundred times in the Old Testament. Uh, the distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that He seems to come and go. The Holy Spirit seems to come upon people and help them do things, but then He might also leave them at a point in time. A great example of that is the three kings, the first three kings of Israel, you know, Saul and then David and Solomon. In each one of their lives, you have the Holy Spirit coming upon them and enabling them to do some awesome and wonderful thing. But if they fall into sin, like Saul did pretty early on, you see there in 1 Samuel 16, the Holy Spirit left him. And then when uh, Samuel anointed David as king, in that same chapter, it says the Holy Spirit came upon him mightily. And then they always tell a story, and, and Samuel, he tells the story immediately of David and Goliath. Now, one of the reasons that story, David and Goliath, is there so that you'll know what it means to have the Holy Spirit come upon you, to come upon David. Here's this little uh, skinny teenager who suddenly defeats this awesome giant that everyone else is afraid of. What is the difference between David and the rest of the men of Israel? What is the difference between David and Saul? He has the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, they asked David, how did you do that? And he said, don't you know that the battle is the Lord's and that the Lord won that battle? He, there was no doubt in David's mind. He did not take credit for it. He knew exactly who had won that battle. God gave Goliath into my hands, he told his audience. And so each of the uh, major Old Testament characters experienced the Holy Spirit. But uh, like, you know, David, Saul, when he sinned, the Holy Spirit left him. And then, of course, in David's life, when he fell into the sin with Bathsheba, guess what happened? Holy Spirit left. So David writes uh, in Psalm 51, he said, Boy, that period of time when the Holy Spirit left me, that was miserable. I suffered terribly. And in that psalm, he cries out. I think it's verse 11. He says, Oh, Lord, please don't ever take your spirit from me again. And so that's the distinction in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit uh, comes to do God's purposes, and that at points in time, the Holy Spirit leaves. And as far as the whole history of the Old Testament, you can see that the Holy Spirit is with Israel in the beginning, but as Israel begins 
to sin and to rebel against God and break the covenant, there begins to be more and more distance between the, the nation of Israel and the Holy Spirit. And all the prophets come and, and tell them what the problem is and why the Spirit has left them. So the, the nation in the Old Testament consistently failed to keep the Old Covenant, to obey God's Word. Therefore, they experienced God's discipline. And finally, in about 600 B.C., you have two great prophets that come about the time of the Babylonian captivity. One is Jeremiah, who came before and during the Babylonian captivity. And then the other was Ezekiel who was prophesying during and after the captivity. But they both talked about the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. And the major distinction between the two covenants, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, guess what? Guess what it is? The coming of the Holy Spirit. In the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit would come on a permanent basis. And He would come... To change their heart. Jeremiah says it great and mark the passage down. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 31 through 34. Jeremiah says you broke the covenant. And what was wrong with the old covenant? He said because you never had a heart for it. You had all these laws written in stone. And you didn't keep them. Why? Because your heart wasn't in it. You had a heart of flesh. They wanted to do what you wanted to do. That wanted to make your own rules and live independently from God. But when the new covenant comes, God said, I will give you a new heart. And when you have that new heart, I will write my law on your heart. Now you'll have a desire to keep God's law and to serve Him and glorify Him as you never did before. And so the Old Testament prophesied, predicted this coming of the Holy Spirit that we call the New Covenant that Jesus inaugurated, Jesus brought in in the New Testament. And what changed dramatically about believers in the Old Testament and the New Testament was this new heart, this regeneration that we've experienced, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36 says, how will this all be accomplished? He says, I'll give you a new heart. Because my spirit will be given to you, and he will indwell you. So Ezekiel 36, verse 27. That's what we needed. That's what God gave us. A new heart. That's the only difference between the people in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Believers in the New and Old. Is we have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, a new heart. Therefore, God uh, wrote this to the nation in captivity to give them comfort. You're suffering now. You're in captivity now. But take heart because there'll be a new covenant in the future that you'll be able to keep. I will put my spirit within you. You can look forward to that. So now in the Gospels, as we continue to trace the doctrine of the Holy Spirit to the New Testament, the Gospels, right off the bat, we see the activity of the Holy Spirit. And in the Gospels, the prophecies that Jeremiah and Ezekiel talked about 
are coming true in the early church, in the very beginning. They're experiencing the new ministry of the Holy Spirit. Of course, you can follow the history of that in the book of Acts. But early on, before that, in the Gospels, Jesus talked about it in John chapter 3. Remember his interview with Nicodemus? When Nicodemus came to him in the night, he was a Pharisee. He was on the Sanhedrin. He didn't want his peers to know he was there, but Jesus intrigued him. There was something about this guy. He didn't know what it was. He couldn't put his finger on it, but this guy was different. And so he asked Jesus, we know you're from God. You can't do the works of God. Uh, you can't do the works you do without being from God. And so he asked him all these great questions about meaning and purpose. And that's where Jesus told him, you must have a new heart. What do you, what do you need? It's not me to give you any new laws, or new ways to live. You need a new heart through a new spiritual birth. You must be born of the Spirit, he told Nicodemus. And then uh, verse 12, chapter 3, he says, no, excuse me. Uh, he, he told Nicodemus that he uh, had come from heaven to teach the words of God and do the works of God, you see. And to reveal the truth of this new covenant that God was going to bring in through his atoning work on the cross. And then as you go to John chapter 14 through 16, you have what is called the Upper Room Discourse. So I just jumped from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry to the last week of his ministry, uh, that night before he was arrested in John 14 through 16, the Last Supper, the teaching that John, uh, uh, Jesus gave in John 14. They were terribly afraid because Jesus had told them that he was leaving. So uh, in verse uh, 12, Jesus says, hey, uh, you should actually rejoice because something, something great is getting ready to happen. Don't be fearful about me leaving. But because when I leave, I will send you another helper, a helper that's like me to help you. And of course, then he explained that he was talking about the Spirit of God. And amazingly enough, he said, you know all the miracles you've seen me do and all the great works you've, you've beheld me do? You will do greater works than these. Now here's these, what we could call clueless disciples, scared to death, didn't know what was going to become of them without their leader, their Lord, and he's telling them that they're actually going to do greater works than they saw him do. And I'm sure they were going, how is that possible that we clueless men, fearful dummies, as we've said, are going to be uh, given this huge responsibility of the ministry and we don't even have an idea of how we're ever going to carry that out. How are we going to take the gospel to the whole world? They're, they're just you know, wondering, how is this all going to play out? And so in verse 16 of John chapter 14, he tells them about another helper, the spirit of truth. And then verse 26, he identifies that helper as the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. He says the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will teach you all the things and bring to your remembrance all the things that I said and did. 
In other words, up to this point, and John writes this in his gospel. He says, when he did that, when he said that, we had no idea what he meant. At what point in time did he start figuring it out? When the Holy Spirit came. And that's what Jesus was telling them. Then in John 15, you have that awesome image that Jesus gave them to explain what the Holy Spirit was going to do in their life. This new ministry that God was going to do enabling them to represent Christ on earth. And the image was the vine and the branches. In John chapter 15, he says, you uh, are the branches. I am the vine. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branches abide in the vine, get all their sustenance, everything they need from the vine. You also abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. So neither can you unless you abide in me. He who abides in me, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So you're absolutely right to think of yourself as dummies. You're absolutely right to think that you can't do this, he's telling his disciples. But God is going to give you his spirit to embolden you and empower you to represent him. It's going to happen. And they're probably still thinking, yeah, but you're leaving. How are we going to be able to do all this? How are we going to be able to abide in you? What does this all mean? And, of course, Jesus says, I'm going to send you the Spirit who will give you everything you need. And then in John chapter 16, he continues the teaching about the Holy Spirit. And he says, it's actually to your advantage that I go away. It's a good deal for you. Because you need the the Spirit to come to help you do the mission that I've given you to do. The great commission, you might call it. How are they going to accomplish that? Through the ministry of the Spirit. And in verse 13, he says, the Spirit will guide you into the truth. He'll take the Word of God and open it up to you so that you can understand it, so that you can obey it. And he will glorify Christ through you. And then, of course, uh, after the resurrection, and you can see this in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, after the resurrection, Jesus was there teaching them for 40 days before the ascension to heaven. And in Acts 1-4, he gives them direction to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure they were going, what? What what does that mean? Do you know? No, I don't know. But I guess we just stay here and find out. In Acts 1-8, he then says, you will receive power. To me, this is really the Great Commission Most people identify the great commission that Jesus gave his disciples, including us, would be Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples. To me, the the best of the great commission statements is in Acts 1-8 because he brings the Holy Spirit into it there. And, of course, that's the key. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is the key to evangelism. So Acts 1.8, he says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you shall be my witnesses. Not before, but then. You can't do it now. You can't do it on your own, but you will be able to then when the Spirit comes. And then in Acts 2, verse 2 through 4, the day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes to impress upon them and to us that the new covenant has arrived, 
that the Spirit has come, this great event, they heard the coming of the Spirit, they saw it like flames of fire, tongues of fire, and they experienced it, they felt it. Now, we don't need that now because we have the Word of God and we have their testimony to know that this is true. But they did. It was a brand new thing for them. It's a great time of transition. And so God let them uh, hear it, see it, and experience it at that time. The fulfillment of what the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel had foretold. The result of which, remember back in John 14, 12, when Jesus said, you shall do greater works than you saw me do? The result of being filled by the Spirit, they took to the streets, preached the word, and what happened? That one day, you can see this in verse 41, Acts 2, 41, 3,000 souls believed and became Christians. Now, that is commonly referred to by all theologians as the beginning, the day the church was begun. I mean, the day before, no church. That day, church. Instant church. And then it says, and thousands were being added every day. I mean, it's a, it was just an explosion of coming to Christ. Why? Because of the work of the Holy Spirit. From that day on, the dominant role of the Holy Spirit in the Great Commission and the life of the church is in view throughout the Bible. You know, especially in the book of Acts, uh, if you look at the title, you know, we just call it the Acts, but the full title, if you look at it, is the Acts of the Apostles. And as I'm reading, I'm going, you know, wait a minute, this should actually be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. I mean, they're there. But the Holy Spirit is really, it's attributing the work to the Holy Spirit. They're wandering around like they were, you know, when they got to uh, Troas. They go, well, where do you think we ought to go now? And they say, well, let's, hey, let's go up north and east. I know some people up there. But this Spirit impressed upon them to go east, to cross over the Aegean Sea, over to Macedonia, and then go down through Greece. And that's where they went. And planted all those churches, the first churches in the Western world, there in Macedonia and Greece. So, it should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit there in the book of Acts. Because uh, of the repetition of the power and the, and the guidance of the Spirit. Right? And so, uh, now based on that narrative history in Acts... Uh, how the Holy Spirit was experienced in the New Testament epistles, especially uh, Paul's letters, uh, we have the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. What is it? Let, first of all, let's talk about the, what the works of the Holy Spirit are. What does the Holy Spirit do in our lives? And let's divide it up into two things. Number one, the works of the Holy Spirit at conversion or at the moment of salvation. And again, I don't care if you were five years old or an adult, uh, in God's eyes, He knows what your spiritual birthday was. He knows when the Holy Spirit came to dwell in you. You may know or you may not know, but God knows. So at the point of time in salvation, the Holy Spirit had already drawn you to Christ, convicted you of the truth. Uh, when you believe, you, you experience what the Bible calls the baptism of the Holy Spirit. By experience, I mean it, it happens to you. You don't, may not feel it. You may not see it. Some people do. Some people don't. 
but it's, but it's not relevant that you do or don't. The Bible just says that this is what happened. The Holy Spirit indwelled you, and you now have a new position in God's eyes as being in Christ. You're being in this new relationship in Christ, a new intimate relationship with God that is sealed, guaranteed, pledged by giving you the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit at that point in time of salvation takes up permanent residence in your heart and begins to work in your life slowly but surely, faster in some than others. Uh, who knows why or how God works, but th this is what happens. And so then you have another series of things that happen by the power of the Holy Spirit after salvation. The works of the Holy Spirit after salvation is a progressive, lifelong ministry that begins to illuminate God's Word. I'll never forget, you know, I'd had Bible stories told me when I was a kid, and I'd had people uh, show me stuff in the Bible, and, you know, I'm, I was just, you know, blank. I was like, you know, I don't get it. it. makes no sense to me whatsoever, and couldn't care less. But then all of a sudden, you know, after I believed in Jesus, all of a sudden it started making sense to me. All of a sudden I started uh, actually wanting to study the Word of God. Everything changed. I actually had a desire to do, which I had never had before. And of course, at the time, I didn't know what was going on. I just thought I was, had a new interest that I was interested in, you know. But years later, the, you know, reading the Bible, I see, you know, this is part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. To, to work inside you, to, to illuminate, to open up, to turn the light bulb on. God's Word and to, and to help us understand it and apply it. So after salvation, this uh, progressive uh, illuminating of God's Word. Have you ever just been studying God's Word and you, and you just, I get it. Or maybe you thought, uh, that is really neat. I've read this before. I don't think that was there before. They just put that in there. Somebody snuck in here in the night and put this in my Bible. Have you ever thought that? Uh, but that's the Holy Spirit working, you know, in you and revealing God's Word to you. We also get a heightened conscience or sensitivity to sin. I, I kind of think that's one of the, the earmarks of spiritual growth. Suddenly, things that we never would have noticed about ourselves before, weaknesses or temptations, whatever, we suddenly begin to notice and we begin to, to actually care when we didn't before. So God starts working on you in the, in the area of sin in your life to change you in that way too, to have, give you a sensitivity to sin. God uh, leads you through the Holy Spirit. He guides you. He emboldens you to share uh, Christ with others. He teaches you. Uh, and he also uh, gives you spiritual gifts. Each one of us is some type of spiritual gift that's to be used. It's given to you in order to be used to work in the church, to edify, build up, encourage the body of Christ, right? And so to, to help us serve in the church. Let me tell you what it's not. What is the Holy Spirit, the works of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit? What is it not? And I want to make sure you understand this because I think most people uh, want it to be a certain thing. It is not, the Holy Spirit is not a divine Ouija board. 
You can't just start praying and go, well, uh, I want to see, show me some signs from heaven so I'll know what's going to happen in the future. That's what a lot of people want to make it, obviously, for personal reasons, selfish reasons. They want uh, personal success. It is not a health and wealth giver. Did, did any of the apostles, or which one of the apostles was healthy and wealthy? Can you think of one? No. No. That's not why the Holy Spirit was given, to give you good health and wealth. He may give it to you, but that's not specifically the purpose. That's not specifically the work of the Holy Spirit to give you or I good health or to make us wealthy. There's nothing selfish about it. It's all about uh, Christ. It's all about glorifying Him. That's what it's about. So, uh, you know, when we uh, look at some of the passages in the Bible about the Holy Spirit as it relates to us, as it applies to you, uh, just a few. Romans 6, 11 through 13 says that we are instruments of righteousness. Think about that. You are God's instruments of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ. We represent Him. Galatians 2.20, we are told that I no longer live for myself, but Christ lives in me. 2 Peter 1.3-4, we're told that we are partakers of the divine nature partakers of the divine nature, instruments of righteousness. As you look at the guy or girl next to you, they don't look like that to me. <laughs> I don't look, I look in the mirror and I go, instrument of righteousness? Are you kidding me? How does this happen? Partaker of the divine nature? How? The same way that David slew Goliath. The Holy Spirit. That's the only way. And God has provided. Well, maybe you're thinking, if you're, if you're like me, uh, as I think back on my uh, spiritual growth, uh, people would talk to me about the, the Holy Spirit, and I'd go, God, that, that sounds mystical and, you know, weird, right? And somebody would say, you know, you're this or you're that, and I'd go, really? <laughs> you know, I don't really know what you're talking about. I don't feel that way is what I wanted to say. I'd usually just stay quiet. And I'd be thinking, why am I not experiencing that? Why don't I feel that way? Well, if you have your Bibles there, look at Galatians 5. Because Paul identifies the problem that we have to overcome in Galatians 5. You can pick it up there in verse 16. And he gives them the command to walk by the Holy Spirit. In other words, live by the Holy Spirit. But he gives the problem, the difficulty in doing that in verse 17. He says, For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please to do. Well, first of all, we've got to figure out what he means by the flesh. What does that mean? The flesh is in opposition 
to the Holy Spirit. What is the flesh biblically? The flesh is uh, in the Bible is that natural, selfish desires in my body that want to exalt myself, that are jealous of others. It's the greed in me, the self-indulgence that I want to have, the anger that so easily provokes, and all the other things that are naturally in this flesh that do not glorify God. That's the flesh. And the flesh is powerful. Normally, the flesh rules. You ever said, what is wrong with that guy? Or why did he do that? This is, a, this is why. He's, he's being controlled, ruled by these kind of desires for greed and self-exaltation. These are natural. We're born with these. And what God has done is given us his spirit to overcome them. And so what he's saying is, verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. He goes through all the fleshly things that people do, a whole laundry list of them. And, and, but he comes back to the deeds of the Spirit. To say that, if you, what was his original command? Walk by the Spirit. In other words, live by the Holy Spirit. Let the Spirit of God Run your life. And if you do, the result will be the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there's no law. In fact, the only guy that ever did this perfectly was Jesus. But you and I have now the potential to live this way and to have these fruits, these attitudes, because we have the Spirit of God. And so the rule of life of Christians is that we are being changed progressively from the inside out because, as Jeremiah said, God is giving us a new heart, a new heart, a spiritual heart. And so in the New Testament and Paul's letters, we are told, uh, Ephesians 5, to be filled with the Spirit. This is the rule of life. It's not keeping a bunch of laws. It's being filled with the Spirit who will enable you then to keep laws and rules and, and to do the right thing. So the, the rule is be filled with the Spirit. And then, as Paul says here in Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit. Now, what does he mean by filled and by walk? Being filled is a matter of control. It's a matter of control. Think of that. I don't know if you ever saw the Campus Crusade little pamphlet, The Four Laws. And if, if you've ever seen it, it, he gives a great illustration. Imagine in your mind that there's a big E that stands for ego. That ego that we all want to control things, you know, because of our big ego. So you've got this big E that stands for your ego, and then you've got this big chair, which, which is the image of a throne. And the idea is the th it's the throne of your life. Who's making decisions and running your life? And then you have a cross. And then the next image is, are you going to have E on the throne, the big ego on the throne, controlling and running your own life for your own benefit, or 
are you going to have? And it's got the cross on the throne. That's, that's what it comes down to. Who's in control? And the Bible is exhorting us to give up our life. You know, Jesus is teaching, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. In other words, give up your agenda, give up uh, your self-exaltation. Instead, live a life exalting Christ. Sacrifice your own life and follow him. That's, the, that's his teaching. And that's what Paul's saying here too. Be controlled by, which filled means control, by the Holy Spirit. And then walk by or live by that guidance of the Holy Spirit according to the Word of God, which the Holy Spirit is using in your life. And so, if you do that, going back to Galatians 5, 16, that command, in verse 16, I say to you, walk by the Spirit. We began this talking about joy. Everybody, who doesn't want to be happy? Everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants joy. Everybody wants all these fruits that he just mentioned here. The love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, self-control. We all want that. But what's it going to take? It's going to, be t- it's going to have to have us yield, yield, submit to the control of the Holy Spirit. And allow him to guide us and lead us in our life. That's, what, that's his ministry to you. Right now. Changing you from the inside out. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for blessing us. Not only with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Who, through his atoning work on the cross, has saved us from all sin. Through his atoning work, the, the blood that he shed. But now, Lord, you also let us experience your grace and your power even now as you are changing us. You have just shed even more grace on us by giving us your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us develop that that filling that Paul talks about and that walking in the spirit so that we can experience now that joy that you want us to have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.